0: with the right timing and place you can harness an energy that will last forever
1: welcome back to another episode of speaker series rewind a podcast by high alpha in this series we revisit high alpha speaker series events featuring industry leaders investors and successful entrepreneurs for our very first season we are focused on co-founders and ceos running everything from B2B software companies to international airports and more. My name is Katherine Martin, and I'm really excited to share today's episode with you all. We're going all the way back to August of 2018 for an interview between Justin Delaney, now the managing partner at Ikigai Capital, and High Alpha managing partner, Scott Dorsey. So at the time of this interview, Justin was the president of Generation Tux, and he talks a lot about his early entrepreneurial journey. He started a company called Manguin, which was then acquired by Generation Tux, taking him into his role as president. When it comes to Manguin, he shares how the idea started with just rethinking the wedding tux process and how it could be more efficient and cost effective. So here are a few takeaways you'll hear from today's episode. Not only will you hear about how to effectively navigate entrepreneurship in the wedding industry, but Justin will also talk a lot about effective marketing, both online using tools like Google and social media. And finally, you'll hear Justin's advice for getting unstuck. So with that, let's jump into the episode.
2: Why don't we start from the beginning and just, if you don't mind, share a little more about yourself, where you grew up, and and also curious as you talk about your upbringing, did you have some early kind of entrepreneurial tendencies?
0: Sure, yeah. So I'm kind of from all over, and a theme of this will be that I've moved all over since so yeah. starting Manguin as well, but I I lived in California till I was about 10 years old, and then I lived in Texas um, after that for high school and college, and you know, middle school and all that kind of stuff. I would say, like entrepreneurial tendency-wise, it's always kind of been a part of my journey. Mm-hmm. You know, I in seventh grade would buy sour balls at the mall and sell them at school for a quarter a piece. I was buying them for three cents. <laughs> Great gross margin. Uh, if I'm gonna do the math real quick. That's you know. 80% ish. Those are um, software gross margins. That's yeah. good stuff. Yeah, it's a software gross margin on a uh, gum, basically. <laughs> that was part of it. Uh, I would say what really set me on the path of entrepreneurship for good, though, is I, I graduated from college at the height of the Great Recession with a finance degree. Like, literally, the worst semester to graduate in human history with a finance degree. I, I managed to pick that semester somehow, and that was December of 2008. So, with everything kind of cratering. And that kind of set me, I applied for like 100 jobs. Obviously, no one hired me. And that <laughs> set me onto a path where I had to start eating what I killed, so to speak. And I think that helped my mentality. That's All good. I really wanted was like an apartment and a paycheck, but no one wanted to give me that. So,
2: I remember the financial crisis also. Our brilliant time at Exact Target, <laughs> we were on file to go public in oh, yeah. late 08. And uh, great time. Didn't, didn't work out that time, but fortunately did years later. So, let's talk about. Let's talk about IU. Maybe talk sure. a little bit about your IU MBA experience, and then how did the Manguin idea come to sure. you and ultimately lead to this uh, best business plan competition?
0: Sure, I'll, I'll take it back to when I graduated from college because I think it's kind of an, an interesting story that led me to IU and led me into uh, fashion. You know, initially, actually, I was a fashion design major when I was like I chose that at like age eighteen, though it was the byproduct of I was in high school. And I wanted to be in the class that had the best girl to guy ratio. And I noticed <laughs> hey, there's, there's this <laughs> class with no guys in it. And so I went into fashion design, found it found it compelling, you know, and ended up deciding to go to college for that as well. Though that didn't hold, I ended up switching to finance. But anyway, I, I graduated at the height of the Great Recession with a finance degree, which was, you know, nearly useless, at least for the next year or two. And I started traveling a lot. So I'd always been into day trading and it's something that my family's done for a long time. My great grandfather is an actuary who's really into to stocks and uh, derivatives and stuff. And so it's this thing we all did when we were kids. And so anyway, I, I'd made some money while I was an undergrad. And so basically what I did when I couldn't get a job is I sold everything I owned, you know, my car and everything I put. I invested in two things, the terrible economy, which turned out to be a pretty good bet. And, and so my wife now, my girlfriend at the time, we just started traveling and we hit the road and we would go to you know, Egypt and Borneo and we were just going all these places and I'd trade the market open every day which would be at you know, 11 at night or at three in the afternoon depending on where we were. And, and we'd decide we'd go home when we ran out of money and it, it kind of never happened that way. And a funny little thing that happened that was sort of entrepreneurial in this is my, my wife's family hated the fact we were doing this. And they were like, why? You know, like this is so dangerous. What are you guys doing? And so I started this little blog. It's actually still on the internet. It was called gobugo.com. Hasn't been posted on in years, but I, I like to keep it there for posterity. And anyway, it got popular enough that I actually got paid to travel and write by AOL, and the, the <coughs> government in Dubai hired me, Virgin hired me, Delta, Like, oh, basically, everyone in travel would send <laughs> me places and I'd write about it. And through that experience, I, I've been mugged. I've been like, all sorts of insane things have happened, but it taught me a lot about the world and gave, you know, like anything that gives you a unique perspective, like you have to cherish. So anyway, getting back to sort of the path, I was doing this a great deal and I became, I was being sold a suit in Bangkok and... I could not believe how cheap it was, and I knew I was being ripped off. You know, in these situations, you're like, "I'm," you're already like, "I'm being ripped off somehow." And I was like, "I'm being ripped mm-hmm. off, and it's still under two hundred dollars for a custom suit.
2: <laughs> how is this possible?" Back, back to the margin topic. Yeah, that's right.
0: And so I, I, I started kind of deconstructing like how that could be possible, and I realized, oh, I could start a custom suit company, and and that's what I want to do. And this was like probably around the time Indochino was maybe starting, and it wasn't like in vogue yet. Obviously, there were like 20 companies that ended up doing this. But I I looked at that, and I was trying to figure out how to do it, and I decided I would just go back to school and get my MBA and focus for basically, you know, a a year, you know, two years solely on that idea. But my idea was to actually get my MBA in Hong Kong, because I was mainly spending time in Asia at the time, and I was, like, trying to figure out how I could be, like, I got a good GMAT score, and I was like, how could I be perceived as a minority so I get a good, like, scholarship, basically. I didn't want to pay for school. And so I figured, oh, OK, if I go to China, like there's not going to be many people from America. So maybe they'll hit some like American quota and give me, you know. That was my <laughs> my, my calculus was bad, though. I didn't get any scholarships. And, Sounds like um, a
2: similar principle to uh, the fashion design. Yeah, totally,
0: also. totally. I, and so I, I anyway, I ended up at IU because they did give me a scholarship. And so that's, that's kind of what brought me there. And funny enough, I was actually set to go to school somewhere else. My great, great, great uncle was the dean of IU's business school in like the 80s and 70s. And my grandfather demanded that I go to Bloomington. He's like, you're gonna love it. And I was like, Indiana? Like, I've never been to Indiana. And we went one weekend and I was like, "Um, this is where I'm coming. So anyway, that's kind of my story about how I got to IU. That's a long story and I apologize for monopolizing the time, but that's that's kind
2: of- We're five minutes in, we've already heard about uh, Sour Balls, day trading, uh, blogging your way through Egypt and around the world, and and then the start of Manguin. And we, we, we haven't even really touched on the uh, pecan business. Oh, yeah, as well. sure. Yeah, that's, that's a rich story as well. Hit story that one, as well. Too before we get into uh, online tuxedo. Yeah, right yeah, because,
0: you know, while at IU, it kind of, like, the custom suit idea, obviously, we pivoted. But um, so you want me to get into the pecan story?
2: Let's you hit that one real <laughs> quick, just so we can give the full flavor <laughs> right. of your, uh, so your I'm,
0: uh, entrepreneurial tendency, I'm it. obsessed with Asia. So I go over there quite a bit. I was literally just mm. there two weeks ago, and I kind of watched China from, you know, 2005 to you know now it's like it's like it's totally transformed and i go periodically and it's just i can't believe how much it changes and so anyway i've always been obsessed with like that is a market high growth market and so i was trying to figure out what to do there and this is kind of jumping ahead of the story after indian university well as i was at iu I actually got offered a job at delta airlines and so i did this full time for like a year and a half while i was getting menguin off the ground but while i was there i met a bunch of people who were like these sort of Southern Georgian pecan. I don't even. It's, they like their families own these pecan estates in Southern Georgia. I don't. I didn't know anything about pecans at the time, but I had a buddy who told me the best pecans in the world come from Southern Georgia, and I believed him. And it's actually fairly true. And he he actually this was like uh, he he kind of had the in with all these families, and so like my trading hat's on. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get all this proprietary information. I'm gonna trade pecan futures. I don't make a ton of money on it. But come to find out like pecans actually don't, they're not traded on exchange. They're not like peanuts or soybeans. You can't like sit in your living room and trade them. You literally would have to go and buy them, put them in a storage facility and then sell them to someone else, which isn't, you know, a good way to trade really by taking control of the goods. So anyway, um, <laughs> so we're like, okay, but it's actually more exciting if there isn't a formal market for things typically because there's more chaos. Like, you know, there's there basically wasn't a spot market for pecans. And so me and this guy decided we would become this like bridge to China from the American South. And so we tried to do pecan, raw pecans for a while. And we got like swindled every way possible. Like pecans got seized in Vietnam. Like <laughs> oh, oh some g- gangsters chased him out of a meeting in Shanghai. Like it was just kind of wild. And so we're like, OK, we, we can't do this. And the margins weren't good. They were like, you know, we'd make like 15% on an order or something like that for making the market or whatever. So anyway, we went into like CPG. So we decided we'd we'd basically flavor them and we came up with all these cool Southern like maple bourbon pecan and Cajun pecan. We had all these like six flavors and we brought all these to China. And actually somehow we managed to get like a state-sponsored mission there. We met every grocery store that's large in China over like the course of a week. It was a whirlwind. I pitched at a trade show over there with like through a translator. But anyway, all this stuff is to basically bring up one point, and it's like one of my biggest heartbreaks as an entrepreneur so far has been, like this idea was a good one. Like pecans are at kind of the intersection of Chinese medicine and nutrition. They have a high fat content. They store for a long time. There's like a lot of reasons why it was good. And I just knew in my heart that it could work. But I gave up because mainly because Manguin was becoming successful. No one wanted to fund a company where like the CEOs, like, yeah, I'm doing this. But I got this weird nut business in China. <laughs> and um, I swear it's like not that time consuming. But it, it really was. But it's the, the heartbreak in it is, you know, we had this thesis and this idea. And it gets deeper than I, I will get into here. But the Chinese food supply is very messy. And literally over there, they'll like see an import sticker. And that's like us seeing a brand. Like if something's imported, they're like, oh, this is a good quality. And so that was kind of our our thesis was we could bring that over. We could sell in the top grocery stores. We could we could sell at a premium. And anyway, another company did this, and they did like a billion dollars in revenue last year, and we're set to go public. But here's the funny part. They were Chinese-based, and they did everything in China, and they actually, their IPO was axed because of a food contamination issue. And so they're still like, so we would have been perfect right there. You know, we had the the thesis that these pecans could sell online in these marketplaces like JD and Taobao and Tmall and, you know, all these like famous Chinese e-commerce plays. So that we were right on that. And then our other thing we want, we're we betting on was that the Chinese wanted products from other, you know, imports. But anyway, that's that's the pecan. That's play.
2: awesome. That's awesome. And I'm
0: still itching to do it. Because um, <laughs> I feel so, I, I feel like I violated my principles by giving up on that one. But
2: this is good. So this really, this starts to give you, you know, the, the flavor of Justin's uh, kind of energy and motor and, and, and entrepreneurial mind. And despite the fact that you had a full-time job at Delta and this kind of, you know, strange nut business on the side. And I inherited my family's company, a French glass business. You had that going also. Yeah. Uh, as a judge in the IU uh, business plant competition, uh, we still invested and, uh, and went all in and said, this, this guy's incredibly talented and has a big vision for Manguin. And, uh, and the amazing thing is it's worked, and it's worked in a pretty remarkable way. Why don't, so actually just, just to fast forward really quickly, so today, Justin's based in Louisville, the business is roughly 15 million in revenue, 150 employees, 300,000 square feet under management. It's a really sizable business that's scaling, just to give you kind of the fast forward, and we'll talk a lot about how that happened, but let's go back to You win the IU Business Plan competition, early idea for Manguin, and in particular, Justin, if you maybe could just talk about marketing, how you really have kind of won the market and got the business off the ground through marketing. Sure. So first, Mm -hmm.
0: I guess where I left off earlier, I'll just start there. Went to IU, had this vision for starting this custom suit company. We were going to get the fabric in Italy. We were going to get things assembled in China and Vietnam and... It seemed like a good idea. I didn't do anything like the first semester except party and, you know, have fun and interview for jobs. And, you know, like, I don't know if anyone here has been to business school, but it's, you, know, you learn a lot and it's pretty fun. And the first semester is kind of like, it's like going back to college in a lot of ways. So it was, you know, I was kind of not lazy, but definitely not doing the entrepreneurial thing. But one interesting thing that happened was one of my co-founders, who's no longer with the company, um, he rented a suit one weekend or a tux or whatever. And he was basically in in Bloomington going to a wedding in Ohio, and he rented the tux here actually on Monument Circle uh, at the Joseph A. Bank that either is still here or isn't. I don't know if it's still here. And he came in on like Monday and was like, I just had the worst experience I've ever had in my life with anything I've ever spent money on. And, uh, you know, I was like, do tell. And he's he's like, I've spent 10 hours basically renting this tux, and it's still in my car because I just went to turn it in, and they were closed, and so I have to drive back to Indianapolis. Tomorrow, and you know, you know geography here, Bloomington, Indianapolis. It's like an hour drive or whatever. So he was like fuming, and we were like, "Wow, there, there might be something there. Let's dive into this a little more." And so we kind of broke out the experience, and it was like, you have to drive there to get fitted. You have to drive there to pick it up. You have to drive there to, you know, drop it off. And that's if everything goes well. It's three round trips, and so we're like, "Wow, that's pretty bad." And. But is it, you know, is this anecdotal or is this like a systemic issue? And so we, you know, because we're getting our MBAs and we're like super pragmatic and all that kind of stuff, we grabbed a professor and we're like, hey, we want to do this primary data gathering, we want to find out if this industry sucks. It is tuxedo-rental. How can we do that without like leading the questions and you know in a very like unaided way? Can we how can we do a sentiment analysis? Essentially, is what we were doing. And so we did that and we found out like 85% of people absolutely hated renting a tux in their previous experiences, and I think it was like 10% neutral, then 5% was positive. So we're like, wow, this is a really bad market. And you know, you're know, you only as good as the problem you're solving. At least that's you know, a, a tailwind. And so we started thinking there like, okay, well, there's definitely a problem to solve. Let's see what the opportunity side of it looks like. And so we pulled some 10Ks out for Men's Warehouse yeah. and other companies who were public that do tux rental. And um, we found out that they make like an 85% gross margin. And so we're like, wow! Like people are getting totally ripped off, and like they hate it, and this company's making a ton of cash, and they Men's Warehouse had like a, a third market share at the time, or maybe a quarter—I can't remember exactly—but in that range. And so that's when we were like, wow! We have to do this. And so we kind of pivoted to, suit and tuxedo rental, you know, after based on that experience. wallet at IU, and then that was probably in like the fall of 2012, and going into 2013, there was this best business plan competition. And it was, our, our goal was actually to pitch at every business plan competition that was like, I think $25,000 or more. And so IU just happened to be the first one. And, you know, there's like Rice and a bunch of other ones and we were like planning our schedule. And I think we might have even booked a ticket to somewhere that we never went because we won the one at IU, which was awesome. We won $100,000. And that that kind of got us started and, and set us on our, our mission. We, we squandered that $100,000 because we were idiots. But, <laughs> but, you know, like any sunk cost, we, we held on and white knuckled our way through. Um, but but it, was, it was certainly like the, the right moment for us and the right time. We just I, Our biggest issue ended up being a technical one, and this is a great lesson. If you have any technical components to your company, you don't have a technical co-founder. It's going to be hard. And so we had, we thought we had a technical co founder, and he was, he was pretty good at, at that kind of thing. But the amount of database work that we needed to do to build what we wanted, which was we wanted people to be able to go on there, specifically brides and grooms, and build out entire wedding parties and be reminded. It's just a more complicated database than you can get off the shelf from Shopify or, or something like that. So, anyway, that we spent a lot of money on. But, but anyway, we won that competition, and, and that's kind of how, how Menguin was born. And that was, we, we ended up launching the website in summer of 2014. <laughs> And you want me to get into marketing because it's...
2: Yeah, let's do that. I'll, okay. I'll give one quick transition. Yeah. So when we, you know, form companies or advise early entrepreneurs, we work on, you know, building a clean cap table, you know, trying to bring investors that can really help your business, but really keep the cap table clean. And we ran the business plan competition at IU for five years and learned a lot along the way. And one thing we did that I, I wish we would have done differently is the path to the 100000 in funding was 20 individual investors putting in 5,000 each. So in a, in an unintended way, we ended up burdening Justin and other entrepreneurs with a really complicated cap table. And one of those investors, you know, in addition to me and actually a couple in the room today, was Mark Cuban. So, uh, so that was pretty interesting to have Mark Cuban might be the smallest check he's ever written uh, it for, probably is. For, for an investment, but he's still on the cap table and still has to approve subsequent rounds of financing. So that that might be a whole different story. But oh, there's
0: a, yeah, there's a fun story Okay, there. so
2: let's let's talk marketing, though. I mean, the, yeah. the name, the brand, Brilliant, and then some of your early demand gen strategies sure. were, were really incredible.
0: Sure. So that's, I mean, I'm definitely a marketing president or at the time a marketing CEO. I, I believe and love marketing and brand specifically. And so you know, early on, we named it Manguin because it has this sort of <clears throat> reverent air and it's kind of like you get it once you think about it for a moment. Granted, like we were, you know, sued over the name. I think you remember that because there's a company called Penguin that's like, uh, you know, and so they, we had to like change our logo and, and do a number of things. But we, we felt strongly enough about Manguin that we fought for it and thankfully are able to use it, even though they did not necessarily want us to but we love the name and that's that's part of like the you know what you call yourself represents a lot about who you are and and that was the first step but from a marketing standpoint i mean this could be an all day type of thing but you know early on some of the the biggest things we did was we invested you know heavily in social and really more paid social which is sort of like i don't i don't even know if i'd advise someone to do that today but in 2000 and 14, it was, it was a good enough strategy. Facebook was still pretty cheap. And then we also invested a lot in, in content early on. And we, we knew really who our target market was. And it was um, brides and grooms. And so like over 90% of our business is, is brides and grooms. We do weddings, basically. You know, when Rent the Runway launched, they created a whole new pie. and And women started renting clothing for all types of events. And like our hope is that someday that will happen with men's. But in the meantime, it hasn't. And so we're focused on where the suits are actually being rented. Like, we don't want to necessarily spend money on modifying behavior. We'd rather just take market share and, and that kind of thing. So we, we picked this market, and what we did is we built all of our content marketing around, initially, around the brides. And we literally took, like, this is, I'll tell, like, three different marketing stories. We'll do the content one first. So we took three, or we took the knot the as, like, a very famous bridal wedding magazine slash website slash like a app probably. Anyway, we took their sort of content on the process a bride goes through over the course of, you know, 14 months is the average engagement. And we basically overlaid that with content. So if, if we, would, we would get, we capture event date very early on. And so we would say, okay, 10 months, what's a bride going through? Okay, she's picking venues. She's doing bridesmaid's dresses. And so we'd put content out there that was like, you know, the worst bridesmaids dresses ever made and, and stuff like that that was really relevant for her. Because what we're trying to do is like slyly gain her trust through content was sort of the plan. And so we would do this, you know, this content strategy, we'd send an email every two weeks to these brides. And, and it worked really well. We actually had one story that's still running on Facebook that has like, you know, 15 or 20,000 shares. And, you know, I don't know how many likes, like maybe 100,000 likes or something. And it's like the worst bridesmaids dresses ever. And like, it's great because like, bridesmaids go on there and they share it with a wedding they're in or vice versa. Like I'm going to do you, this to you and they'll tag all their friends. And it's like a great, so like, those kinds of marketing things work well because like, that's out there now, Evergreen. Like, we put that out there in like, mm. 2014 or 2015. Wow. I still get like 10 emails a day for comments on it. Like, I had to create my own folder for that so I don't have to look <laughs> at them as they come in, but I'll check it periodically. And so anyway, like, that's, that's a good story about kind of the content side of it. Like, we looked at sort of the customer journey that exists outside of our experience, but in the grander experience of the bride in this, in this instance. Because really, we have to hit the bride's like, bar, the groom's bar is gonna be a little lower. <laughs> <laughs> and so like we learned, that, we learned that really early on, because like, when we first launched, we were real bro-y, and like, not, I don't know if you're familiar with chubbies, but we weren't that far, but we were like, we, were, like, a, we had n- no female voice at our company, and we were just kind of idiots about how we spoke like people were like you're almost too irreverent and weird i don't trust you with my wedding and so we we uh, you know ended up hiring people from the wedding industry to help us navigate that but anyway that was kind of the first lesson is you know win the heart through content and and you know build trust that way which is a, a great lesson for obviously wow. it's 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 kind of funny because it's sort of a SaaS model because we have the same sort of like purchase window or funnel like we have like a year-long funnel right. which is you know more of like a you know like a B2B type funnel, it's not like a typical B2C. So anyway, we, we adopted a lot. And I remember Scott, you told me in like 2014, mm-hmm. like invest in content, that's, that, that will help. Yeah, and good. so that's, that's yeah. the first thing is content. The, the second thing I think we did really well early on was we basically, we asked ourselves like, where are these brides? Like where, where are they like physically? Because we're not gonna have a store, mm-hmm. but like is there a place they go? And we, we realized they go to like these, these wedding shows. I don't know if anyone here has been to a wedding show. I've been to probably 100, and they're they are they're not that much fun. But <laughs> brides come to them in droves in every city around the U.S., and they look for vendors for their wedding. But what it serves as is a great way to connect with someone personally and to meet them. And so really early on, we invested a lot in bridal shows. We actually did like 500 of these things last mm-hmm. year just at Manguin, which we've kind of pared down a little bit because it's, we, we scaled it a little bit too much, and, and we were like hiring 1099 workers in every state and I think like thousands of them. So it was like a little messy. But, but anyway, but the, the strategy at its core is really sound. And that is, you know, go where people are. And so we'd go to these shows and we'd sign up like 100 to 200 brides at each show. And, um, and then we would basically get their wedding date and then we would feed them that content drip that I mentioned earlier. And that's kind of how that, that model started to come together. And that, that probably got us to our first million dollars in revenue. Like that, that approach... Like we did a lot of stuff on social where we would we'd take that content and put it into social and amplify it. And anyone who gave us their email address, you know, we're making custom audiences on social to make sure that we're bombarding them in like sort of a, a manual offline to online retargeting kind of way. But that, those were like two big, big things that we did early on that were really powerful. And, and lastly, I'll just touch on, you know, Google. Like we, we, we do a lot on Google uh, especially with iterative testing or growth hacking or whatever you want. I, I hate using the term growth hacking, but it's really what it is. So we do a lot with Google landing pages in our site. Like we will just spend a ton of money making the most. We'll like change the degrees on our rounded button and see if it changes anything. Stuff like that. Like we really, we test a lot. So I'd say the third thing is like you know always be testing. Like we. We, you know, use optimizely and a bunch of other platforms and full story and all these things to make sure that we are like watching our customer go through the site constantly and, and refining it. And we're still we were doing that when we had 100000 dollars in revenue and we're doing it now as well with the same like intensity. So that's kind of where we get a lot of our opportunities from. And, you know, every now and then you you land on something that increases your conversion rate by a, a, you know, like ten percent, meaning, you know, like a maybe like half a point or a point or something. If, if you're lucky and, and those are the we've like been using pattern 89
2: one of our portfolio yeah we companies. pattern 89 we, that. That. we use um, yeah
0: it's an that's awesome good. product that the team's developed there but that's that's and that's 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 really in vain, like in line with that sort of that strategy. strategy we also do you know growth hacking on on facebook and all these other things but for whatever reason google has been like our steady you know Every down running back that we're like feeding the ball. And like we're to the point now where we're actually trying to like wean ourselves off of it. We're like, okay, let's try to make like our marketing budget only 30% Google this year and, and stuff like that. Or, but it's, it's,
2: an interesting, it's an interesting approach to marketing. That's great. So we talked about this if you don't quit, you don't fail concept. And I think that that's a phenomenal mantra for entrepreneurship. It's real. You know, I think all of us are part of early stage companies and it's really, really difficult and very hard. To build a team, find product market fit, get funding, overcome all the obstacles that come your way, and when you do it, it it's pretty remarkable. But it can often be a really difficult journey, and, and the journey uh, for Justin and, and Megwin's been really really difficult. And I just I've so admired your uh, resilience and commitment and determination to the business. It's incredible. And we'll we'll get to uh, we'll get to kind of the better days here in a moment. But you know what can you share of just kind of uh, you know. If you don't quit, you don't fail. You know, how have you kind of powered your way through it? Uh, Your wife's been remarkably supportive. So Justin has uh, two little babies, a third on the way, and along this five-year journey has lived in five different cities in order to get Manguin off the ground. I mean, his personal and family commitment's just been off the charts. So anything you're comfortable sharing would be really great.
0: Um, I mean, philosophically, like, the way that I look at it is I have my next moment always. And that moment might be raising... Around a financing, getting the first customer, getting to a million dollars in revenue, whatever the moment is, and whenever I have that moment, it's like I don't care what's between me and that moment. Like I don't care if I have to move to you know three times or whatever. Like I, hit real quick where you've moved so far. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I've lived in Bloomington, Indiana, is where we, we started the company, Atlanta, Georgia, because I did take a job at Delta Airlines, and so we we moved the company there, and that's where our first warehouse was. Dallas, Texas. I actually we'll get into this. I moved back in with my parents. So I quit my job at Delta when we were about $40,000 in revenue and went all in, you know, so to speak. But if so I had to tell my wife, like, hey, we're moving to Texas. We're, we have this cool house here. We have to get rid of everything because we got to live in this one room with our you know, two-month-old newborn at my parents' house. So anyway, she was thrilled with that. So we did that. <laughs> she, was, she was even more pumped when just four months later I said, hey, you know what? Um, we're getting these investors in Arkansas. So, here's what's going to happen. I'm, I'm moving to Arkansas with my friends and my coworkers at Manguin. We're getting a house together, and, and you're going to stay here with my parents. <laughs> but, I'll, but, I'll... Oh my gosh. but it's cool. I figured out a way to game British Airways, and I'm going to be able to fly back for basically free. So, um, well, I'll see you like every weekend or every other weekend or something. And so I moved to Arkansas. Um, you know, I met Christian, and, and Arkansas was really great to us. We, we raised a lot of funding there, and it was It was perfect because the low cost of living and we really, we had a lot of access there to everyone in the community. So we lived in Arkansas, which we probably would have stayed there if not for um, the next move, which was being acquired by um, Generation Tux, which brought us to Louisville, Kentucky. And so that was five moves. Thankfully, in a month before our second child came, my wife decided that she would move to Arkansas. And so she ended up moving up there about a little less than a year after I moved up there. So we ended up finally getting the family back together. Yeah. But it was it was terrible. Like, it was not fun. There, wasn't, there was there's nothing fun about not being paid, like semi, you know, putting your family in a predicament, or not semi, like putting your family in a predicament, you know, not being there for your kids early on and stuff like that. But like for me, like it's all about being a zealot about getting to that next goal and that next moment and not caring about the walls between me and that moment and not caring about the movement. And so I think that's the general yeah. theme. Because you make it to that next moment, then you can see the next one and so on and so forth. And as long as you keep drawing those lines, you never lose.
2: You yeah, I like that, I forward. like that. Make it to the next moment. So, yeah. so a lot of personal sacrifice along the way, but then things start working. Like the business starts really working <clears throat> and really scaling. And then you get a phone call from a guy named George Zimmer. Does that name ring a bell? The men's warehouse? I guarantee it. You kind of hear his voice ringing in your head. So literally George Zimmer reaches out what in the world was that like? Yeah, so... And by the way, George had started Generation Tux. So Generation Tux was a Manguin competitor.
0: Yeah. So George, you know, had left Men's Warehouse or was asked to leave or, you know, and it was kind of this... He he had sort of, you know, like probably feeling that any of us would have if we were kicked out of a company we started and ran for 40 years and brought public, like... Mm. Like, it was a really, like, terrible thing that happened to him. And uh, anyway, so he was kind of like, you know kind of having the same process we were going through at IU, except his was more like, I was a part of this company. I know the one part of this company that is profitable. I'm going to replicate that. And so that was what he went through. And, and what we went through was a little different. The difference was, as well, he could raise a lot of money, and we really couldn't. And so he raised a lot of money, and he built all this infrastructure out. And so there's like there's this great metaphor of the entrepreneur. Like when you first start out, you're in a jungle, and you have a machete, and you're just like trying to get forward down the path. And eventually you're like out of the jungle and you're like, oh great, I have to start like pouring concrete and hiring trucks. And like a lot of entrepreneurs don't make that leap. Like for me, which has been great is George literally built the concrete company while we were in the jungle. And we came out of it and we're like, oh, we don't want to pour all this concrete. And just metaphorically, we were about to do a Series A at that point in time. So we were going to have to invest in you know, CapEx and building out our infrastructure, which George had already done. And so George came to us and was like, you know, we want to acquire your company. And so it was kind of this great marriage of, you know, functionally we, we fit well, but also, you know, just from like a approach to entrepreneurship, we, we fit extremely well because he had the resources and I think we had the right idea. Because like we were a little bit bigger from a revenue standpoint, but they'd raised $60 million. We had raised, you know, like two or something yeah. like that at the time. So it was definitely like a, you know, different approach to business. But George, you know, he calls me and he says, next time you're in the Bay Area come on by my house and, and we'll, you know, chat. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. I make a point to, like, meet with everybody that's, you know, even semi-interesting. I, I, I love people and, and meeting with them and exchanging ideas, and especially if they're a competitor. And so, you know, I was like, well, I'm in, you know, the Bay Area next Next week or something, which I probably was, not I probably booked the flight to see him, and then <laughs> scheduled a bunch of meetings, you know, with VCs or whatever, in, you know, on the back end. But I went, I went, and visited George. You know, he came out of his house. He has this like great like garden in his front yard. Like a California flag hanging on a flagpole. It's like kind of this like you know pretty dramatic entry, and he comes out of the door like perfectly timed. Like, hi, I'm George. You know, his, like gravelly voice, <laughs> you know. and I was just like, no way. Were you and nervous? So, I mean, like, a, a little bit just because, you know, there's some nerves there. Because, I, well, I mean, I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what yeah. we were going to talk about. I didn't know what I should talk about, what I shouldn't. I don't know how cutthroat this guy is. You yeah. know, you, like, sometimes you meet with competitors, maybe you overshare, and it, it comes back. So, anyway, we, we, we go in, and I brought him all these gifts. I had just flown back from um, Japan, and I had, like, bought him some gifts from the trip and, and also from, from some other places, and I gave him each of these sentimental gifts each with a lesson, which was like, I, I really put a lot of thought into this. And, and I wanted to make an impression, honestly. And I left his house, and you know, I was at the airport, and he called, and he's like, I want to combine our companies. And so that was 2016 October. <laughs> and so it, it took about a year before the deal got done. We, we actually, it fell apart, and then it, it started going again in, in March of 2017, and we closed the deal in, in about a year ago, almost a year ago, September of 2017. But it so was- awesome.
2: Are you comfortable sharing with the gifts? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I'd love yeah, to hear yeah.
0: that. So I, I brought him a bottle of scotch first, which was, I'm really into scotch. And, um, and it was this bottle by this, this distillery called Ardbeg, which is kind of a cool distillery. And it was Cory Vecchin, which is like named after a whirlpool off the northern coast of Jura in Scotland. And so I gave him that and I was like, I think the message was something along the lines of, so there's this whirlpool in, in northern Scotland that's like this mythological thing, but it's real. But it's been going for like over a thousand years. And it it's just it's like harnessed energy in a way that it never stops. And so the the lesson there was, you know, with the right timing and place, you can harness an energy that will last forever. So that was the first lesson. Awesome. The second gift was this this tongue tea oolong tea. I'm also really into tea, that was like grown in an estate that had just been bought by the Taiwanese government. And it was the highest altitude oolong from Taiwan, which is like kind of a big deal to tea nerds, like probably maybe lost on George, but I liked it as a gift. And so <laughs> I gave it to him. <laughs> and uh, and the, the lesson there was like, you know, certain things in life though are fleeting, you know, but you need to appreciate them while you have them. And so this tea is like, you know, like theoretically from that farm isn't going to be, you know, ever exist again, possibly. But, you know, we have it here for, you know, limited time. So let's enjoy it. That was the second lesson. The third which is my favorite. I almost like, originally was just going to give him this but like it, it seemed like too preachy so i had to like you know pepper in the, the other three gifts like some sort of three wise men thing but so i gave him there's this castle in japan called himeji castle and it's this really interesting castle that's um it's like the most visited castle in japan it's gorgeous it's like all white and it has this like insane stone foundation and so when the lord was building this castle like way back in the day probably 600 years ago or something like that he couldn't find enough stones for the foundation somehow i don't know how this happens but he he didn't he couldn't and and some woman in town found out about this and so and she was this older woman and all she owned was this millstone which like basically was kind of like a swiss army knife for people back in the day like they used it for smashing rice or mortar and pestle i i don't actually know but they used it for a lot of stuff and it was a valuable possession she actually gave it to this lord and said hey you know i heard you're having a trouble, trouble building this foundation, but take my millstone. This is, you know, it's small, but maybe it will make a difference. And in sort of like a feudal Kickstarter, like the story spreads through Japan and everyone in Japan sends their stones in. And now, you know, they built the most beautiful castle in Japan. (laughs) It's a cool story. And, um, but the, the, the lesson of the story is that like, and I was like, George, it, it can be our, it can be our castle probably, but we're not the ones that are going to build it. Like you need people to build it. And that was kind of the last lesson is like, You know, it's you can be the smartest person in the world. You can be brilliant. You can be a storied entrepreneur of forty years that's very wealthy, but alone, you know, you're you're not going to be able to pull off something great. And so that was kind of the last lesson. And
2: that's awesome. Yeah. So these 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 vignettes
0: these vignettes sold my company. So um.
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's right. There's some good lessons right right there. So maybe last question, then we'll open it up. You combine the companies—that's no small task. Yeah, and then and then one of the elements I think that's most intriguing is your decision to continue running both brands sure. versus bringing them together into one. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. So, Menguin and Generation Tux do the exact same thing. I mean, it's like we rent suits and tuxes online. So, when we were doing the deal, there was like, well, are we going to get rid of Menguin? Are we going to you know fold that into Generation Tux? Like, there was you know it's it's very much George's company so there really wasn't much like thought on on possibly keeping Menguin and and we had like a vision to sort of use George more on TV which he's on TV now nationally doing his guarantee thing again except for generation talks which is really exciting but so we were we were kind of fine with that but we were like well let's keep Menguin though because well one we have this really long funnel so we probably have a year of revenue already in the mm-hmm. funnel we don't want to kill it and number two you know we've built some brand value there and there and, and so kind of what we did is we took both brands and we developed like a kind of like a character chart on like Gentux is this, Gentux is, you know, like fine art, Menguin is graffiti, you know, Gentux is film, Menguin is digital, like camera-wise. Like we shoot all the Gentux stuff, medium format film, we shoot Manguin stuff with digital, so on and so forth. This whole sort of thing that, that I, I'm really into brands. So I did this with a professor at IU named That's Neil awesome. Morgan who's like a, who's a board member at Menguin <laughs> until the end and, and i and the market and doesn't houses. really
2: know that these are one company, right? Yeah. I mean, the market really, I mean, large market perception is two separate they companies. Can, they
0: can figure it out. You know, there's like a subreddit on it. Like, these are the same companies, but like, I don't know that it matters. Like, because yeah. at Manguin, we didn't, yeah. we didn't own anything. Like, we shipped some other company's stuff anyway. And we actually have an intermediate brand between both brands that we ship. So granted, like, some of the stuff for a little while was labeled Generation Tux. Most of it's labeled 726, which is like an intermediate brand that we can both use. Okay. And so that's, that's kind of been the strategy there, is to just make them a little different. And we, we somewhat target different people on like you know Facebook audiences and stuff like that. But it's, it's honestly, with like two million weddings a year, it's kind of hard to do. But one thing that we're sort of looking at doing, which, which I was telling Scott is, earlier, is we're long-term looking to position Manguin more in the B2B sense. One of the biggest problems in this market is that there's all these brick and mortar stores. And they have like two-thirds market share in, in the market that, that we're in in and tuxedo rental. And they haven't, you know, innovated in a long time. They have a lot of headaches. And we've just managed to accidentally solve a lot of their problems with our technology platform. We're very so we have a big engineering team, we're very technology focused. All of our software we build in-house, even for our entire dry cleaning and warehouse system. <clears throat> so we have, you know, a great team. We love to like. Find a new problem, throw everyone on a Google Sprint, you know, see them on Friday, be like, what'd you come up with? We have that kind of approach to problem solving. And so with this, we, we kind of threw that at it and we're like, oh, we can basically make these people a lot more money if they use us for fulfillment. Granted, we hurt a little on maybe the margin side, but we don't have to spend as much with you know the richest, most powerful companies in the world, like Google and Facebook, that can arbitrarily change things and are very competitive mm-hmm. platforms. And so that's kind of a long-term idea is to shift Manguin more to like the B2B format, which would be, um, which would be good. Because there is like kind of an, a, you know, a little bit of agita behind like two brands doing the same thing. You know, you'd, you'd always want to invest in the brand that's going to get the better return. So investing in both is a little bit divergent and strange. And the scale's but,
2: huge. I mean, give us a sense of like, you know, how many garments are shipped in a month or how many events you're managing. I mean, this has gotten really to be quite a sizable business.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're like, so, I mean, the overall industry is like a, I think there's one it's like a 1.5 billion dollar industry, which is pretty awesome. But and we're like not even at we're probably at a percent of that right now. But we're we're shipping like four times as many, four or five times as many suits as we were last year with just Gen Talks. So it's it's the scale's interesting. I think we shipped like a thousand things the other day or something wow, like that, wow. which is, it's pretty wild. That's awesome. So that's kind of like our our throughput. But we have this like massive facility with all this stuff and and um, it's pretty
2: exciting. That's awesome, that's awesome. All right, that's a pretty remarkable journey for any entrepreneur. Uh, On behalf of everyone here at High Alpha in Indianapolis, Justin, thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Stay up to date with High Alpha, our portfolio companies, and the future of Enterprise Cloud. Subscribe to our newsletter to get portfolio updates, new company launch information, and the latest content in your inbox every month. Visit highalpha.com slash newsletter to subscribe. That's highalpha.com slash newsletter.
2: Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by High Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews and it'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.